Welcome to the Sermon Series Podcast for the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. There is nothing more central to the life of the follower of Jesus Christ than prayer. And it is our great hope and desire that we would be marked both individually and corporately as a people of prayer. To that end, this summer, we are teaching through the Lord's Prayer, which was Jesus' response when his disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. We're so glad that you've been able to join us. If you are in the Nashville area and would like to join us in person, we worship together at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Good morning. That was totally pathetic. So uh, we're just going to try it again. When someone says, I know we're Presbyterians, but you can speak back. When someone says good morning, good morning. morning. That is so much better. Welcome to church. My name is Gary Anderson. I serve as, I'm not sure what I serve as right now. think I'm, the, I'm still the pastor in residence here, um, but that will hopefully change in the next few weeks. Uh, anybody here at the congregational meeting this past week? That, that was a good woo. All right. Uh, that was a really sweet night. Uh, for those of you who couldn't make it, we're sorry that you weren't there. It was chaos, but it was beautiful chaos. Uh, it was just an amazing picture of how faithful and kind God has been to this church and this community um, and the work that he's doing in and among us. And uh, just like... I had a few people be like, so you're the new pastor today. And I'm like, not quite. So just so you all know what's going on, uh, that was actually, thank you for your vote if you voted. Um, I'm ready to be done making jokes about that, but we got at least one more week. Um, That was a contingent vote, a contingent upon me actually getting ordained, which I got a couple more hurdles for that in the next few weeks. Um, But hopefully that goes, Lord willing, that goes smoothly. Um, And then we'll have a clear transition service here, probably in the, not probably, uh, in the early part of September. So uh, the other thing I want to say, and none of y'all particularly will care about this, but I have a microphone right now, and so I'm going to talk about it. Um, this weekend, exactly a year ago, is the weekend that my wife Beth and I, under cover of night, came here and came to Granny White for the first time. We had a bunch of meetings all weekend long. Um, and this actually feels like a really seminal moment for me because all, first of all, all that God has done in the last year in our lives. A year ago, we were living in San Jose, California, and now we are here. And um, mostly, uh, I have come in here, me and my family have come in here as strangers, but you have loved us like we are family. And I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, I know that what's about to happen in the next few weeks is a big deal for a lot of you because there's a guy who's been here already for a little while. And I think most of, some of you like him, most of you like him. Um, And again, you'll hear me say this a hundred times over the next few weeks, maybe not a hundred, but I feel the weight of this transition and who Randy is and what he has meant to this church. And most of the time, not all of the time, I'm like, who am I to step into this role? Um, And yet, despite that, you all have loved us and welcomed us and been so kind to us, and not just me and my wife, but our kids as well. And so I just want to say thank you for how you have made this transition for us and for our family. Um, we have seen Jesus in you all. Uh, when we finished the two services that we sat in last year at this weekend, we'd been talking to Midtown for several months, um, but Beth and I just sat there in the back corner and watched a lot of you file out, I assume. And uh, it was one of the more like like 
watershed moments of the whole experience because we were like, even if we weren't in ministry, this is the kind of church that we would want to be a part of. So we feel so privileged to get to be a part of Midtown and so humbled to be here. And um, that, maybe that's my sermon. Maybe I should just sit down and we'll call it a day. Um, so thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll turn to God's word. God, we thank you for this day. Uh, it is the day that you have made. And uh, whether life is good and easy and happy right now or whether life is hard and stressful and disappointing right now, uh, we will rejoice and be glad in it because uh, you are on the throne, you are God, and we are your children. I pray that now uh, as we turn to your word that you would quiet our hearts before you. I pray that you would uh, allow us to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that for all intents and purposes over the next few moments, I would disappear, that only you would be seen. I pray that you would speak through me. Um, I pray, God, that we wouldn't leave this place unchanged uh, because we have had an encounter with the living God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in 2011, a bartender in his mid-20s named Dan Saunders from a town called, I think it's called Wangaratta. You probably say that differently if you're from there. It's in Australia. Um, I'm from the Midwest, so I don't sound like an Australian. Uh, But he was out drinking with some friends one night, and he went to buy a round for his buddies. And when he went to pay for it, his card was declined. And so he needed to pay for this. He had a tab now. And so he went out of the bar, went around the corner to the local ATM. And uh, knowing he didn't have very much money in his account, he just wanted to see how much he could actually get out. So he put his card in, and he tried to find out what the balance on his account was. And he got an error message that said, uh, account balance not available. And so he's like, well, that's annoying and frustrating. And then he was like, so, so, so what he tried to do, he's like, uh, he tried to transfer money between two of his accounts. Not sure again how much money he had, but he transferred $200 from his savings account to his checking account. And when he did that transaction, he got another error message that said transaction canceled. But he was like, uh, I'm going to try and get that money out anyway. And so he tried to withdraw $200. And lo and behold, the ATM spit out $200 in cash. He was happy about this, obviously. He knew that was probably more than he had in his account, but he was like, we'll deal with the consequences later. And he went back to the bar, paid off his tab, and continued having a good evening with his friends. Uh, On his way home that night, he was walking home that night, and uh, as he tells it, he says it was probably a combination of being bored and having been drinking. He was really curious about what had happened at that ATM earlier in the night, and he walked past it, and he decided to stop and try it again and see what would happen. And so he put his card in, and he uh, looked up his balance, and he got an error message that said, account balance not available. And then he transferred $200 from his savings account to his checking account. He got another error message that said, transaction canceled. And then he withdrew $200, and $200 came out of the ATM. So he tried $500. $500 came out of the ATM. He tried $600. $600 came out of the ATM. He put it in his wallet. He went home and went to bed. He said, when I woke up the next morning, I thought it had been a dream. He said, but I looked in my wallet and there was $1,500 and I realized it hadn't been a dream. So he got a little bit nervous. He called the bank to ask about his account and they said everything looked normal on his account. He figured out that between one and three in the morning, that specific ATM went offline and it did not register the transactions that he was uh, putting in at the machine. For the next five months, he went to that ATM every single night. This is, a true, this is a true story. And he took out $1.6 million over the course of five months. And needless to say, his life changed dramatically. 
he all of a sudden had a lot of new friends because it turns out people love to be friends with millionaires. He wore nice clothes. He ate at the best restaurants in town. He rented a villa out in the country where he threw huge parties every weekend. He spent 50 grand to charter a 20-person private jet for he and 19 of his friends to go to Bali for a week where they rented out the entire resort. Uh, it wasn't just self-serving stuff. He had several friends who he paid off their college debt for them. He had another friend who wanted to study abroad. He paid for them to study abroad in France. Uh, he says that he felt like a caveman discovering fire. He literally became an overnight millionaire. Now, that's what we need to know for the sermon that I'm about to preach. But I know everyone in here is like, well, what, actually, what happened to him after that? Uh, his conscience got the best of him. He called the bank after five months of doing this, told them what had happened. They said, you're in big trouble. Uh, you'll hear from the police. And then he didn't hear anything for three years. Seriously, three years. And then the police showed up. He was charged with 111 counts of fraud and larceny, uh, spent a year in prison and another 18 months on probation, and then went back to being a bartender for $22 an hour. This is not a sermon on temptation or stealing. <laughs> but it would be a great intro if it was. This is a sermon about treasure. And for a minute, can you guys just enter into this story with me and just um, imagine what it would be like to have been Dan Saunders in 2011. Like take the, you know, I know we're in church and it's going to be like, oh, he's going to talk about how you know, money's the root of all. Take, just take all that off the table. And can we just enter into what it would be like to discover a magic ATM that gave you money anytime you wanted it with no consequences? Are we there? What would that do to your life? Again, I know we're in church, and you're all like, he's going to hit us hard now. Like, Biggie gets the credit. Jesus said it first. More money, more problems. We know all that. But just, again, suspend your disbelief for a few minutes and just imagine what that would do to your life. Now, look, I know some of us in this room are in a place where money's not really an issue. We are financially comfortable. We have, I mean, everything we need, probably not everything we want. And it's like to have a bunch of extra money maybe wouldn't make that big of a difference. A lot of us are not in that place where to actually have a little extra cash or a little 1.6 million extra cash would actually make an incredible difference in our lives. But here's the deal. Regardless of where you're at on that spectrum, that would radically change your life. Let's just say hypothetically you are in the market for a used car right now. That would really change what you're looking at to buy for a, for a car. You actually, you'd move from the used car market probably to the new car market, which would be a pretty sweet deal. Um, so here's, here, here's what I want us to do. Just uh, as best as we can, think about what that does to your heart when you think about something like that happening to you. And again, like just, just maybe I'm the only raging materialist in this room, and I, I probably can put most of you to shame, but is there not something inside of you that's like, I want that? I, I would really like for that to happen to me. Not prison, not probation, not that stuff, but I would sure love to have a magic ATM in my basement that gave me cash whenever I need it. I, I, I am, not, I'm not going to use I language, I'm going to use we. The reason something in our hearts, at least those of us who are honest enough to say it, hears that and is like, I want that, is because we are hardwired to long for something like that. We are, we are all searching for something. And... And that speaks to the language of our heart. 
because we are hardwired to want something outside of ourselves. Okay, now hold that. Magic ATM in Australia. Not magic, criminal ATM in Australia. <laughs> um, we are in a series this summer on prayer. It is the great hope, it is the great prayer of our staff and our elders and the leadership of this church that, that our, our community would be deeply marked as a community of prayer in part because it's what Jesus' heart is for us. It's central to the life of following him. And how we have been talking about preaching through prayer this summer as we've gone through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, for those of you who are tracking with us, we are now done with the Lord's Prayer. And in the few weeks that we have left of summer, and uh, you all, nope, it's we all because I'm here now, we all start very, school very early in these part, around these parts. So I don't mean to be a down, Debbie Downer for the kids in here, uh, but school is not that far away. Summer is almost over. Um, sorry. It's good for you. <laughs> and for your parents. In the few weeks that we have left, uh, we are transitioning from preaching through the Lord's Prayer to now looking at what does that actually look like in real time? If we are going to be people of prayer, if we are going to pray as Jesus has commanded us to pray, how does that actually play out in real life? And so the last few weeks of summer, we are looking at several parables that all circulate around one theme, and that is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the reason we're doing that is because after Jesus commands us to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, the next thing he tells us to pray is what? Your kingdom come. And we did a sermon on that, and it was great, and you can go back and listen to that if you need a refresher, but we're spending the rest of the summer talking about what does that actually look like? What does it look like to pray your kingdom come, and what does it actually mean for God's kingdom to come into the kingdom of the world that we live in right now? And the parable that we're going to look at today to do that is found in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a physical Bible, I'll let you get there. I'll give you 10 seconds to get there. Uh, well, I think we'll have it up on the screen too. Yep, there it is. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44, it's just one verse. So we're going to start in 44 and we're going to end in 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sell all, sells all that he has and buys that field. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three things. I want us to get out of this, uh, this short parable on the kingdom of heaven uh, as we look at it today. And the first is this. I forgot it. <laughs> We're all searching for something. We are all searching for something. So uh, if you've been around church for a while, you have heard this word parable uh, if you're new or relatively new, you may have still heard this word parable. Uh, parables were stories that Jesus told. He is the only one in scripture that uses parables. And there is actually very little, actually no evidence in extra biblical literature from the time of Jesus of anyone else using parables. They are unique to Jesus. And the classic definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus would use everyday um, stuff that's around us that we're familiar with to teach a spiritual truth. Usually, a parable has one main idea, one main point that Jesus is trying to make. And that is true of the parable that we're looking at this morning. Uh, but I'm a preacher, so I'm going to draw out three of them. We'll save the main one for the end. The first one is this. We are all searching for something. Now, uh, as we dig into this 
story, what I want us to think about is this idea that this guy that Jesus is talking about found some buried treasure. Now, this is not a a pirate story, though that would have been very cool if it was. Actually, buried treasure is not, was not that uncommon in the time of Jesus. So they did not have banks. They did not have safety deposit boxes. They did not have safes. Uh, they did not have savings and loans. So if you had something of value and you wanted to keep it safe, one of the primary ways that you did that was to literally bury it in the ground. If you uh, were going on a long journey, very often you would bury some, your, your valuables in the ground. If you were going away to war, very often you would bury your valuables in the ground. If war was coming to you, you would bury, bury your valuables in the ground. And so uh, we actually have, um, from some communities around Jesus' time, we have literal treasure maps that they left that were maps where all the valuables from their town were buried in case everyone got killed and no one could tell you where that buried treasure was. So who is this guy who has found the treasure? Well, he might be like the guy at the beach that we all know who has the metal detector and, um, and a sick fanny pack and the headphones and probably Crocs and no knock on Crocs. I spent several weeks wearing them and they are wonderful, comfortable, convenient footwear. Uh, he may have been someone who was like literally a treasure hunter out there trying to find buried treasure that someone who'd gone away to war and never came back had lost. Uh, or maybe he was just a common worker This was the field that he worked in. He was planting crops for whatever season was coming next, and he happened upon this box. Either way, or some other story, it doesn't really matter because the point I want to make is this. He was searching for something even if he didn't know that he was. Dan Saunders, bartender in Australia in 2011, he wasn't looking for a magic ATM that would give him all the cash he could ever desire, but I can guarantee you he was searching for something because we are all searching for something. We are all hardwired to look for something that is outside of, above, and different than ourselves. Do you know what I think um, two of the most dangerous words in the English language are? Refined sugar. No, I'm just... (laughs) That's a dad joke. I got them for days. If only... Uh, So in my short number of years that I've been a pastor, I have had the opportunity to meet with a lot of people. And I have sat across lunch or breakfast or coffee or in my office from somebody many times. And there is something about being a pastor, and this is good and right, this is not a complaint in, in any way, but there's something about being a pastor that when you sit with somebody, it's like they will take you to level two, three, and four of their heart way faster than if you're just, you know, coworker Joe Schmo. And again, that is... Literally, I count that as one of the great privileges of my life to get to sit with people and talk about the challenges and the really crummy stuff that some of you all walk through in life. But, but something that I hear over and over when I meet with people, sometimes it's literally these, two, literally these two words, but not always. Sometimes it's just the idea of it. But, but the phrase, if only. And we all have if onlys, do we not? I am speaking very much from personal experience because I got thousands of if-onlys. If only I had a girlfriend. That's not mine. I'm just, that's hypothetically. (laughs) If only I had a boyfriend. If if only I were married. If, If only I had a better job. If only I had a different job. 
If only I could make partner, if only I could finish this degree, if only I could make the team. And they're not all like kind of selfish, self-serving, I want stuff for me. A lot of our if-onlys come from like the deep shame and hurt and anger of our lives. Like if only my marriage hadn't fallen apart or if only I hadn't lost my job or if only we could have a child. We all have if-onlys. And, and all an if-only is, is a searching for something with a mask on. It just means we're looking for something. It means it, it, all of our if-onlys can be, can be encapsulated into, into one statement, and that is we are looking for something. We are searching for something. And hear me say this, please. I am not coming down on that. That is not like there's something wrong with that. It is, it is the way we, it, it, it is, I've said it like 10 times, but I'm just going to say it again. We're hardwired for that. We are hardwired to be searching for something. We are all searching for something, whether we can put a name on it or not. And there's not anything wrong with that. The challenge really is we get really confused about what we're searching for. We get really confused about what it is that we think will do for us what we want it to do. The only thing, I think the only thing worse than never realizing our if-onlys is actually getting it and then realizing it didn't do for us what we thought it was going to do. We are all searching for something. We get confused about what it is. And that can be uh, understood because the next point of this sermon is that the thing we are looking for, which is the kingdom of heaven, is easy to miss. So the second thing I want us to see in this passage is that the kingdom of heaven is easy to miss. Um, so in scripture, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are used interchangeably. So in our passage that we're looking at today, it says the kingdom of heaven. But I may, I'm going to say that phrase so many times over the next 15 minutes. Um, maybe 20, we'll see. Uh, I may say kingdom of God and that just, they, they mean the same thing. But what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? We are talking about the realm, and I know like now we're, now we're talking like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter-ish, and some of you are like, I don't really like that, and others of you are like, I'm here for this. It is the realm where God, the true sovereign King of kings, Lord of lords, where he is reigning and where his rule and his, this is not a scriptural term, but I hope you understand why, when I say it, where his culture is pervasive. What is the culture of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? <laughs> Everything that scripture teaches us, love, peace, joy, selflessness, kindness, all the things that we think sound like really good ideas, but are like totally contrary to the what? The kingdom of the world, which is the one that we live in and the, the culture that we live in. And in Mark chapter one, after Jesus shows up on the scene and as he's about to begin his public ministry, Mark tells us that the first thing that Jesus says, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what scripture teaches is that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God broke into the kingdom of the world when Jesus arrived. His arrival was the announcement that there is another kingdom and this is an invasion and the kingdom of the world better look out. And one day, that kingdom will be fully consummated and the kingdom of the world will be defeated. But that is not the case today. So it's why theologians talk about us living in the now and the not yet. Because the kingdom of heaven is here and it's among us, 
but isn't fully realized. And one day when Jesus returns, it will be. But we are in this in-between time. And so what Jesus teaches, and I love the, like, a lot of keeps it real in this parable. The kingdom of heaven, though it's here among us, it's easy to miss. Uh, I think this was like 16 years ago. I think it was 2007. Uh, uh, on author at the Washington Post, a journalist at the Washington Post. He did an experiment and, uh, and wrote about it. And he actually won an award for it. But he brought a guy named Joshua Bell, who is, was a child prodigy on the violin. He is a virtuoso. He is one of the finest violin players in the world. He brought him to one of the DC metro stations and had him go busking. Do you know what busking is? I mean, this is Nashville. We know what, we know what busking is, right? It's where you take an instrument or you in a band or whatever, you go, uh, Jimmy Fallon does it, and it's funny. You go play in a public place and you put the case uh, for your instrument down and you hope that people pay you to play music in a public place. So Joshua Bell, who three days prior had played at Boston's Symphony Hall, the cheap seats for that concert had gone for $100 a piece. He put on jeans and a baseball cap and went to a DC metro station with his $3.5 million Stradivarius and played the exact same pieces that he had paid three, played three nights earlier at the Boston Symphony Hall. In 45 minutes, over 1,000 people walked past him. Seven stopped. One recognized him for who he was, and he made $32.17, which actually is not bad for 45 minutes of work. I mean, that's better than babysitting. One of the greatest... <laughs> violinists of our generation was playing a free concert in a metro station in Washington, D.C., and nobody recognized who he was. Why? Because he wasn't what they expected. Because you don't expect one of the greatest musicians of our time to play in a metro station in jeans and a baseball cap. And the same is true for the kingdom of heaven. Why is it easy to miss? Because it's not what we expect. Because we're like, if, if, if the God of this Bible is who he says he is, sovereign over all creation, creator of all things, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, omnipowerful, omni whatever, omnipotent, whatever that all, if, if that's God and he's got a kingdom and he's bringing that kingdom up against the kingdom of the world, what would we expect would, be hap would happen? The kingdom of the world would be obliterated. Every, every sin would be made right. Every wrong would be made right. Every tear would be dried. Everything would be made new. Like there would be no questioning who's in control and whose kingdom is this and who's, what is the culture that reigns here. But, but our reality is what? That's not what we experience. One day we will. But as we're here in the now and the not yet, the kingdom of heaven is easy to miss. And I say that as like, be freed of that. Because how many of us, and like, I, the first service doesn't ever talk back. I almost got an amen when I said this. Uh, you ever look at God's church and be like, really? Like, that is the representation of everything that this supposedly says and teaches? And what Jesus is saying here in this parable is yes, exactly. Because the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure. There were all these people Wherever that field was that this that homeboy found this treasure, there were certainly, well, maybe it was out in the middle of nowhere. But, but more than likely, it was just some field outside the city walls. And there were probably a lot of people who walked through that field, who walked by that field, 
right under their noses was something of immeasurable worth, and they couldn't see it. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. So we're all searching for something. Two, the kingdom of heaven is easy to miss. And here's the last one, and this is the major, this is the main point. This is the one, one big idea for this parable. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. So uh, just join with me as we try to our, do our best to enter into this story. So here's this guy. Maybe he's a treasure hunter. Probably not. Probably just a worker out in the field, digging some holes, hits something hard, opens it up, finds an incredible amount of valuable treasure in there. And what does he do? Closes it back up, puts it back in the hole, covers the hole back up. We could talk about the morality of that some other time. Jesus told the story, so we're going with it. And then what does he do? He goes home. And what does he say to his wife when she meets him at the door? I found buried treasure. And she's like, all right, bro. Like, okay, (laughs) dinner's ready. And he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, We need to sell the house tomorrow. And she's like, sell the house? The house that we spent 10 years saving up for? He's like, yep, and the cars. I already took pictures. I'm putting it on Facebook Marketplace tomorrow. And, and he's like, and the, the kids' bikes, those got to go. And he's like, your engagement ring, I'm taking it to the pawn shop tomorrow. And uh, the Apple stock that your dad gave us 20 years ago, we're cashing it out. My 401k, we're cashing it out. Your IRA, we're cashing it out. The kids' 529s, we're cashing them all out. And, 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 and he's like, we're selling everything. And she looked at him, and what does she say? You've lost your mind. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're, you're, you're a psychopath. What are you talking about? You're talking about literally destroying our lives. And he's like, you better believe it. This is not a sermon on marriage relationships. Uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll talk about that some other time. And, and not only his wife, but who else? His kids. His kids are like, we thought you were trying to ruin our lives, and now we know you're trying to ruin our lives. His, his neighbors, when they see the house up for sale, the cars up for sale, the... the Everything they own out in the front yard for a yard sale at bargain prices, they're like, he's, lost, he's off his rocker. He's lost his mind. His coworkers, the people at the club, his co- whatever, his college buddies, everybody's like, you are crazy. Why? Because they don't recognize the treasure that he knows about. Because they don't recognize the value of what he has found. They can't see it. They don't recognize what it is worth. He, he has decided to literally blow up his entire life. Every, he, it is a, he, he is dismantling brick by brick everything about his former life because he has found something that is so much more valuable. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. It is, it is more valuable than anything. It is more valuable than everything. And here's, here's what we want, I want you to see in this passage. What, in what manner does he do this? In what manner does he completely dismantle his life? In what manner does he get rid of everything he held dear? It's like resigned, stoic obedience. Like, um, well, I guess I guess I got to do this because supposedly it's the right thing to do. Like sad, disappointed, angry. I think it's the most important word in this whole verse. In his joy. He, he blows up his entire life and he does it in joy because he recognizes the value of the treasure that he has found far, far surpasses anything 
that he has known in his life up to that point. It is not an accident that just a few chapters later in Matthew 19, we get a story that many of us will be familiar with that we commonly know uh, as the rich young ruler. Remember what happens in that story? This guy comes up to Jesus and he's somebody and uh, somebody special or important or whatever. And he says, um, sir or, or master, maybe he says, Lord. He says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep all the commandments of God. And this guy is so bold. He's like, awesome. I've done it. I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus is like, all right, killer. Well, okay, well, if that's the case, um, go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And do you remember, those of you who are familiar with that story, do you remember in what manner the rich young ruler went away? Yeah, in the ESV it says sorrowful. He went away sad, it says, because he had great possessions. One one gave up everything joyfully. The other went away sad. And what was the difference? One recognized the value of the treasure, and one did not. Uh, there was a Danish theologian and philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He lived in the 1800s, and he wrote a parable, actually. So Jesus wasn't the only one. A few years later, this guy named Soren Kierkegaard wrote one too. Uh, and he wrote a parable about a jewelry store in a town. And he said, uh, one night, thieves broke into this jewelry store in the center of this town. But they didn't steal anything. All they did was switch the price tags. They mixed up all the price tags. They took the price tags off of the really expensive jewelry and put it on the costume jewelry. And they took the price tags off the costume jewelry and they put it on the really expensive stuff. And then they left. And so he says for the next months and years, there were people all over that town walking around with cubic zirconia on their finger, thinking that they had the biggest diamond in the city. There were people walking around who thought they didn't have enough to buy anything except the fake stuff. And they had the most valuable jewelry that that store had to offer. And in case you aren't making the connection, that parable was a parable for the world that we live in. See, while we were asleep, this guy named the devil snuck in and he didn't steal anything. He just changed all the price tags. And so in the kingdom of the world, all of the things that look really expensive are actually really cheap. And all the things that look really cheap are actually really expensive. So we got people all over this town, all over this city, all over this state, all over this world who are walking around looking like they are totally blinged out. And in reality, they are very poor. And there are a whole bunch of people in this world who on the outside look like they are barely scraping by. And yet they have more than we could possibly imagine. It was C.S. Lewis who said, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. So what does that mean for us? Uh, because here's where it would be really easy to take the, 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 the final application of this parable. Does that mean we all got to sell everything we own and give it to the poor and go follow Jesus? You know what I think the answer to that question is? Maybe. Uh, everyone was like, please say no, please say no, please say no. Um, I, when, when, when Beth and I 
uh, left Ohio to go to seminary, um, someone connected me with the missions pastor at the church we were going to. I didn't know him. I'd never met him. And I went and sat in his office for 30 minutes and talked about what we were about to do. And uh, I was kind of lamenting, like, you know, we're downsizing and getting rid of some stuff. And he was like, oh, yeah. Uh, my wife and I have sold everything we own three different times in our marriage. So this is not like, I just say that to be like, there's some people who actually literally have done this. That the kingdom of heaven and the call of God on their life has felt so powerful and so valuable that the things of this earth, as the, as the old hymn goes, grow strangely dim in the light of its glory and its grace. Does that mean that God's calling every one of us to sell everything we have and give it away and go follow him? I don't think so. Like, there are a lot of us in this room who are exactly where God has called us to be. But there are some of us that, that he might call us to do that. And it's like, you know, when the teacher asks for a volunteer and all of a sudden everyone's eyes drop and nobody makes eye contact. It's like, please call on someone else. Please call on somebody else. Uh, but here's like, so, so that would be the easy application. Like, hey, we're in Green Hills and we're affluent and you all know the statistics. Relative to the rest of the world, we ha- we're, we're all rich, however you feel. And so give it all away and you'll have treasure in heaven. And maybe God will call you to do that. But I want to get to what actually I think is the, is the deeper application of this passage. I don't think God's calling all of us to get rid of all of our stuff. Maybe some of our stuff. Uh, here's what I think, not I think. Here's what I know for sure is the call of God on our lives. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, I think the message of this text is this. Our lives will not make sense to everyone around us. If, if we have recognized the value of the kingdom of heaven, we will live our lives in a way that does not make sense to the kingdom of the world. So, so and I, like, I know this is, I don't want to be confrontational, if you don't like this, you can email me, randy at midtownfellowship.org. <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of that one for a long time. If our neighbors who don't call themselves followers of Jesus, if our coworkers who don't follow, call themselves followers of Jesus, if our friends, if our family members who don't call themselves followers of Jesus, if they can look at our lives and say, everything about that makes sense. The way they spend their money makes sense. The way they spend their free time makes sense. The way they raise their kids makes sense. The way they do their dating relationship makes sense. The, the way they talk, the questions they ask, all of that makes sense. Then I think it's safe to ask, have we really recognized the value of the kingdom of heaven, which is worth more than everything? Because if we have, we will make some decisions that look crazy to the world. Doesn't mean necessarily you're going to sell everything but we will do some things that don't make sense to those who have no context for the kingdom of heaven and the fact that it is worth everything. Okay, so let's go home on this. The last thing that I would ever want us to take away from this, and you're going to be like, well, that sounds like what you preached for the last however long I've been doing this, is this. Uh, We do not go searching for something on our own. The, 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 The very clear teaching of this book is that it's not up to us to to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to get our metal detector and headphones out and head out into the world, making sure we can find the kingdom of heaven and see how valuable it is, and then just in sheer determination, radically blow up our lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The only way we could ever find a treasure, like the treasure Jesus talks about in this passage, is if someone was looking for us first as if that treasure was making itself available to be found. Do you know what God says about us in Deuteronomy 7, 6? 
He says we are his treasured possession. And do you know what Jesus did about his treasured possession? I'm not going to tell you. I actually just want to read it for you. This is in Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus do when he found God's treasured possession? He sold the farm. He gave up everything because you and I are his treasured possession and he he gave it all up in order to seek and save the lost. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The God who became man and died on a cross in our place because he was so enamored with the treasure that he had found. It was the great, uh, I, should, I don't know if he's great. There was a missionary in the middle of, of the 20th century named Jim Elliott who famously wrote in his journal one time, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are the treasured possession. Jesus is searching for you. May we allow ourselves to be found. The kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure that was buried in a field. A man found it and covered it back up and in his joy sold everything that he owned in order to buy the field. Let's pray. God, thank you for the beauty and the truth and the conviction that your word brings to us. God, I pray um, much more than anyone in here right now feeling like um, I got to go work harder for you and make more apparent how much you mean to me and how valuable you are to me. I pray, God, that we would all, you through the power of your spirit, would just now allow us to rest in the fact that we are your treasured possession and that you moved heaven and earth literally to come find us and to save us. It's almost more than, not it's almost more, it is truly more than we can comprehend. And all we can do is say thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.